1: New witness transcripts released from the January 6th committee included one from Donald Trump's own son and an unusual request from one sitting GOP senator. Then, officials are calling it the largest Russian missile strike since the war began. Ukrainians say it could have been so much worse. Plus, some signs of relief on the horizon for tens of thousands of Southwest passengers who have been stuck in the airline's meltdown for now eight days. Welcome to the Lead. I'm Phil Mattingly in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with our politics lead, a new insight into the January 6th investigation. The committee today released more testimony transcripts from 19 witnesses, including Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., Trump attorney, Christina Bob, former Trump advisor, Kimberly Guilfoyle, former Trump White House advisor, Stephen Miller, and former press, White House press secretary, Stephanie Grisham. There's one key theme that sticks out in many of these transcripts. And that's the role of Mark Meadows. He, of course, was Trump's chief of staff on January 6th and was the closest person uh, in the closest proximity to the president throughout that day. Multiple witnesses recounting texting Meadows during the insurrection, desperately asking him to persuade Trump to condemn the violence. CNN's Sarah Murray is with us now. and Sarah, you've been pouring over Donald Trump Jr.'s transcripts and probably every other transcript, too. What have you found in what you've seen so far?
2: Yeah, we've had a whole team that is digging into this today. But the Donald Trump Jr. transcripts are interesting because, like everyone else, he was texting Mark Meadows while the riot was unfolding. You know, he's saying to Mark Meadows, talking about his dad, he's got to condemn this expletive. He says they will try to F his entire legacy on this if it gets worse. So he's imploring Mark Meadows to get his dad to do something, to call off the rioters as the attack on the Capitol is unfolding. The other thing that's interesting about this transcript with Donald Trump Trump Jr. is there's a whole lot he doesn't recall when it comes to direct conversations that he was having with his father. And he lays out why he was in touch with some of the aides around his father after he and his dad were separated on that day. You know, he explained that Donald Trump doesn't use email. He doesn't text. So he's saying, if I was on a plane with Wi-Fi, my father doesn't text. So I couldn't reach out to him directly. So I reached out to his chief of staff. And this is important, Phil, because this is the kind of thing that has been really problematic for investigators who look into Donald Trump. The witnesses around him can say, I don't recall these exact conversations. And there's not a paper trail because Donald Trump himself doesn't text. He doesn't use email. At one point, Donald Trump Jr. is asked about other messaging apps. And he says, I don't even think my dad knows about those.
1: Uh, Sarah, we're we're also learning about uh, a a particular case that you have a lot of insight into. You've broken a ton of news on it. it. Involves Senator Lindsey Graham. In some of these transcripts, he offered to be a champion for President Trump's false claim of election fraud in the wake of the 2020 election. Tell me more about what we saw here.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think we knew after the election that Lindsey Graham was trying to help the Trump team. You know, we made we know he made calls uh, in Georgia, for instance. But this transcript and it's from Christina Bob, sheds more insight onto it. You know, he tells her apparently in this conversation she's recounting, just give me five dead voters. Just give me a very small snapshot that I can take and champion. So the South Carolina senator is not saying show me the evidence that you have that the there was so much fraud that, you know, the election actually could have been swayed in Donald Trump's favor, he's just saying, give me a couple examples so that I can go out there and I can be a champion for Donald Trump and claim that he won. Now, Phil, of course, as you know, after the rioters broke into the Capitol, Lindsey Graham eventually backed off this election challenge and voted to certify the election results.
1: Um, I think you have a lot more reading to do, Sarah <laughs> Murray, you and the entire team, very great team that we have. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Thanks. Let's bring in Tom Dupree, former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General, to discuss, um, it's tough to figure out where to start. We feel like we get these almost every single day, and there's always kind of new elements here. But I want to start with Donald Trump Jr., the committee, asking him about the $250 million that Trump raised after the election. $10 million was spent on litigation. But what the committee asked was what happened to the rest of the money. He said he didn't know. Is it strange to you that he wouldn't have any idea where several hundred million dollars went?
3: Yes, it is strange to me. And look, every day seems to bring another cluster of mini bombshells from the January 6th committee. Today's transcript release is no exception. And that particular portion, Donald Trump Jr.'s testimony about where the money went, did jump out to me. I mean, I would put it squarely in the category of things that make you go, hmm, it's a lot of money. It didn't happen that long ago. And look, they're presumably going to be aware of this massive amount of money they're raising, the use that it was being put to. So again, not saying it's false testimony, but it's the sort of thing when you hear it on its face, doesn't quite seem plausible.
1: Well, it's an idea that kind of dovetails with the other question I had, which was you read both Donald Trump Jr.'s transcript, but a lot of these transcripts. And throughout, you hear you know, or you see, I don't know or I can't recall. And I think one of the questions I have, look, this is a congressional investigation. Obviously, there is a federal investigation going on as well. Are those the types of answers that a federal investigator would look at, that Justice Department officials would look at and say, all right, well, maybe we should dive a little bit deeper into the things that they claim not to know to Congress?
3: They they definitely would. In other words, if you have a witness who's testifying under oath, they don't recall something. That's not necessarily the end of the analysis. What you can do is you can try to corroborate uh, what actually went on you can look to documentary records you can look to emails you can look to texts if they exist and you can also talk to other witnesses who might be able to place a particular witness in a meeting or in an exchange where something like this was discussed so someone saying i don't know can be frustrating from an investigator's perspective but by no means does shut down the investigation or close that avenue of analysis
1: ask you every single one of these transcripts always seems to come back to mark meadows um, probably much to his chagrin to, to some sense but when you read through this, when you get the sense that everything seems to circle around him, and in part it was because he was the only one who seemed to have a direct line of the president— Do you see legal liability here? Do you see particular issues for Mark Meadows as this continues to play out?
3: Well, certainly he's got issues here. Uh, In other words, to your point, he was at the center of so much action. He had direct communication with the president, you know, the chief of staff at the White House, at ground zero when so much of this was unfolding in the days leading up to and immediately after January 6th. We learned the other day that he apparently had a habit of burning documents in his office fireplace. I would not have advised him to do that. (laughs) And it could potentially lead to legal liability if those documents were ones that were required to be preserved under federal law you
1: know one of the things look these are coming uh in isolation you don't necessarily always have the full context you try and piece together things we have no idea what the justice department has what they know what the process is but as you looked through these both from the committee's work but also the transcripts that we've seen up to this point what do you think the special counsel jack smith what do you think they're doing with these transcripts how are they utilizing them if they are
3: at all I think they are scrutinizing every word of these transcripts. But the thing to keep in mind here is that these transcripts are part of a much larger mosaic. An investigation of this scope involves hundreds, thousands of witnesses and documents. And the information that the Justice Department has access to may help make sense of some of the committee transcripts. In other words, they have information we don't have. And so when the Justice Department investigators read these transcripts, they will be approaching it with a knowledge base and concepts and ideas that we in the public don't have because we're not privy to that. So they may be able to make make sense of some of these exchanges and attach significance to some pieces of testimony that would elude the rest of us
1: and attach clear innocence on other pieces that seem to raise red flags. Uh, there's so much we don't know here. And I think Absolutely. it's, good. it's
3: good to remind people of that throughout this process. It's fascinating watching the pieces of this puzzle being filled in as time goes on. And we haven't heard the last of it. That's yeah, for sure.
1: No question about it. Tom breathe. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate Thank you. It. You can't make this up. Unless, apparently, you're George Santos, who makes just about everything up. The incoming Republican congressman caught in more lies as investigations are launched. Plus, a terrifying 2020 flashback is now a current reality as Chinese travelers arrive in Italy and dozens of passengers test positive for COVID. We're back with more in our Politics lead. CNN has learned federal prosecutors are investigating Congressman-elect George Santos' finances. Amid growing questions over loans, he gave his campaign totaling more than $700,000. This comes as Nassau County's Republican District Attorney announced another investigation in the wake of Santos' admission that he lied about key parts of his background and resume, along with this stark warning. Quote, No one is above the law, and if a crime was committed in this county, we will prosecute it. As CNN's Salman Safadi reports, those, these probes come as CNN has uncovered even more lies from the congressman-elect.
4: Shame! 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 Scrutiny is intensifying around congressman-elect George Santos.
5: Watching this slow George Santos train wreck
4: take place. Federal prosecutors in New York opening an investigation into Santos's finances with big questions over how the Republican made his money and the $700,000 he loaned to his 2020 campaign. Locally, Santos is facing another probe from the Nassau County District Attorney's Office, calling the numerous fabrications and inconsistencies nothing short of stunning.
0: Did I embellish my resume? Yes, I did. And I'm sorry.
6: And it shouldn't be done.
4: All this is a whole slew of new fabrications previously unreported are emerging from CNN's K file. Santos once claiming to have attended an elite private school in New York.
0: They sent me to a good prep school, so and which was Horstman uh, prep in the Bronx. And um, on my senior year of prep school, unfortunately, my parents uh, fell on hard time.
4: But that claim is false according to the school, who has no evidence that he ever attended. Santos also saying that he represented Goldman Sachs at a financial conference, claiming he spoke out against the company for investing in renewables. But there is no record of Santos appearing on the panel or even attending the conference, and Goldman Sachs had previously said he never worked there. CNN also found additional false claims about his family's background. Santos claiming his mother's Jewish name was Zabrowski and even appearing to use the name for a charity posting.
0: We don't carry the, the Ukrainian last name um, for a lot of people who are uh, descendants of World War II refugees or survivors of the Holocaust. So a lot of names and paperwork were changed in, in name of survival.
4: But according to a professional genealogist who helped research Santos's background for CNN, there is no evidence of that this name dream, nor that jewish or ukrainian scene, heritage in his family tree
0: my father fled socialism in brazil my mother fled socialism in europe and they came here and built a family
4: cnn's review found santos's mother was actually born in brazil
0: now it's going to be up on, uh, incumbent upon me to deliver on those results and i look forward to servicing you're, you're servicing exactly and, right. and serving my people my district
4: As Santos attempts to move forward to Capitol Hill.
0: I'm not a criminal. I committed absolutely no crimes.
4: The legal road ahead for him could be treacherous.
1: Where and how did he get this money?
4: As the federal probe zeroes in on his finances.
1: If you intentionally make a false statement about your assets or anything else that matters, that too could be a federal false statements crime.
4: And another story Santos is being questioned about this afternoon's claims that his mother was at the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001, and that played a role in her death. Santos sent out a tweet last year claiming that 9-11 claimed his mother's life. Santos's mother actually passed away in 2016. His campaign said that she passed away when she lost her battle to cancer. Of course, many first responders and survivors did go on to develop health conditions after 9-11. And Phil CNN has asked representatives for Santos for clarification on this.
1: Salman Serfati, thanks so much. I want to discuss... Uh not really sure where to start, um, <laughs> but I've kind of been in that place all week, so we're going to go ahead and give it a yeah, shot. Um, Margaret, I, I think, obviously, the, the, the kind of critical issue here, uh, beyond the absurdity of a lot of this, is there's state investigations, there's federal investi- a, a federal investigation as well. The chairman of the Nassau County Republican Party is saying they will support him in 2024, not from the near term sense, longer term. W- what does this all say about where George Santos is headed?
7: I think George Santos is in a lot of trouble long term, but in the short term, there's no indication that anything other than him being sworn in is what's going to happen unless he decides not to go through with it. He's not been convicted of a crime. He meets the age requirements. He meets the citizenship requirements. As far as we know, Kevin McCarthy could decide not to seat him on committees. Uh, A lot of other things could happen. But look, ever since January 6th or before January 6th, we've been talking about how you can't overturn the results of an election and like it or not. And this guy is not good for democracy and not what voters thought they were getting. But he was duly elected unless there is a reason by law why he cannot be sworn in. He has the right to be sworn in.
1: So, Nicholas, Margaret makes a good point in the sense that we haven't really heard anything from leadership up to this point. There's some layers to that, including a you know, speaker's race on January 3rd. But Kevin McCarthy is going to be back in Washington on January 3rd, and people like yourself are going to be tracking him around the hallways of Congress. Can he remain silent on this until that's over? Is that the plan? How does this all work? Well, Kevin McCarthy has certainly tried to stay
6: quiet on this. We've tried asking him in the halls. He hasn't responded. Uh, The Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, said that McCarthy was looking like he was in witness protection. But you know, at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot Democrats can actually do to keep Santos from being seated and taking office, uh, short of trying to raise any kind of different procedural motion uh, on January 3rd. But that goes down to a majority vote, and Republicans, at the end of the day, want another
1: member in Congress. Yeah, I mean, the majority is not very large at this point in time, which, which gets to the idea that the Speaker's race probably has some... Uh, bearing on whether or not you hear from Republican leaders. Do you feel like this has any impact on this race? It feels so fluid right now, Doug, in terms of anything could break any different way. Does this have an effect at all?
8: Given the margin, it does. And it explains why you haven't really heard anything from Kevin McCarthy or other members of leadership yet. Uh, yet, We often say in politics, you can't get in trouble for what you don't say. Now, often you get criticized for not saying anything. But if you're Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise and other members of leadership, If you say the wrong thing, which actually in this case means the smart, sensible, right, obvious thing about George Santos, that affects one vote for the speakership because Santos will have a vote for speaker unless he decides not to. And that puts then the House potentially in jeopardy. If Kevin doesn't get the majority on that first vote, we go into very uncharted waters that isn't just political parlors and and fun to speculate on, very serious ramifications.
7: it It is a political parlor game. And fun to speculate on, but you're right. Once the speculation ends at a certain point, if that vote really does get dragged out, the leadership of the House will
9: be questioned. I I mean, I think there's something here that we're all missing, and that is what actually George Santos has done and the outrage that has to be there from the media, from elected officials, from Democrats. I'm glad we're seeing it from some Republican officials, at least at the local level, Clearly not yet on the national level. We know why. But that should be infuriating in and of itself. Because this guy, George Santos, if that even is his name, has perpetrated the biggest case of voter fraud, voter fraud, on his constituents in his district. That should enrage every single person who voted for him. And Margaret's right. There's no law. But maybe there should be a law. People are not going to police themselves in terms of what being an, an elected official means. There should be a law that you cannot lie egregiously. And they were lies. He talks about embellishments. Embellishments are, look, I was maybe not at the top, the top of my class, but I graduated from, from this university. That's an embellishment. What he said and what he continues to say are outright lies. It's hard to find something that is yeah. truth, that is an actual but, but statement. Well, exactly, fact, and he, and he ta- he's... He was entrusted with an elected position. That is a position of public trust. And this guy, if he even is a guy, has completely broken that public trust. But that should there, there should remedies be some bad. consequences. Well,
1: there's to that. remedies, but there's also a democratic campaign that ran against him. And I'm not taking a shot at Oppo Research or, or whatever they had or didn't have or whatever paid attention to it or money or any of that type of stuff. Sure. But like. Come on. I agree, like, yeah, I I agree, agree with, with you. The, in all honesty, the this isn't say. voter fraud. He ran. there's a campaign that had yes. every opportunity to I've bring agreed. up
9: all of these I issues. I completely agree with you. I've been the first one to say that that is political malpractice, that this was not brought up. But I also understand that it was brought up, that there were some stories about it. There was just not the focus on it. And and you're right. It's the opposition campaign that should have not let this go. But but that doesn't mean that it's their fault.
8: We we can focus on the smorgasbord of of stupidity with the lies that he's told. He could be one of the Madison Cawthorn all-stars. But that's not necessarily relevant to whether or not he serves. It's whether or not he broke the law. We've seen an invitation or house rules. We've seen an invitation for a fundraiser that's promising a capital tour. Uh, to donors. Now, that doesn't okay. sound like a big deal. That's an official act and an ethics violation. Yeah. Capital yeah. E. Well, well I, I, he, may, I,
7: he may have broken the law. He may have violated ethics. All that may take a while to play out. And yeah. that is why he is on track to be sworn in. He may not be on track to serve out for two years. Yeah, it, it doesn't all seem of like he's on track to, in to
1: win it. in two years as well. I do want to turn to the, the latest transcripts. Um, yeah. and. and Nicholas, I want to get to you in a sec, because you're basically my Notes on Twitter when these transcripts come out, because you read all them. But Margaret, I want, I want to start with the idea of, we had the testimony from former White House aide Stephanie Grisham, uh, and she made some interesting comments about how Trump viewed the rioters who say they were there to support him. Quote, he was kind of reveling in the fact that these people were fighting for him, but he also didn't like how they looked. His comments were that the people looked very trashy, but also look at what fighters they are. So we should point out that Grisham heard this secondhand, not from Trump directly. But what do you make of this? It actually sounds very on brand from the former president. It sounds yeah.
7: exactly like what you expect Donald Trump to say. What's interesting is that the report's already out, but as these transcripts come out, you do get a little bit more granularity to all of these conversations. Don Jr., where did the money go? I don't know. I mean, if you're if you were still giving to Donald Trump by the end of his presidency and you thought you knew where the money was going, wow. What's surprising is how much it matches how much we knew about the final days of his presidency. And
1: along those lines to some degree, Grisham also testified that Melania Trump didn't trust much of Donald Trump, Donald Trump's inner circle, even his own children, quote, when it came to the kids, especially Don Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle, she never trusted that they were doing things in the best interest of of Don Jr.'s father. Now, Melania didn't even uh, trust Trump's own children to give him good advice. (laughs) Again, kind of tracks with, I think, what a lot of us assume. But like, what's your take on that when you see it? One thing that really stood out
6: to me in today's transcripts was actually a little bit in Kimberly Glefoyle's testimony that they put out, where she basically described a lot of this infighting around Trump world around January 6th and leading up to it as like the movie Mean Girls, right? And I think like that, you know, we've, we've read plenty about this reported before. We've seen some of these figures talk about it. But this is where we really see what the January 6th committee was able to do, to add something like this from these figures of Trump's inner circle on the record in a transcript for the
1: public to see. Yeah, Mean Girls kind of seems like an understatement. I feel like Mean Girls is kind of the norm sometimes. It's <laughs> a little bit above that. Stop Guys, i trying
7: to make that happen. No
1: shortage of news. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's one of the largest Russian miss- missile strikes to target Ukraine since the war began. We have a look at the damage and destruction in Ukraine's capital. In our world lead, major damage cleanup today across Ukraine as cities and villages were hit in what Kiev is calling Russia's largest missile attack of the war. Ukrainian President Zelensky says Russia launched more than 120 missiles targeting infrastructure in many cities, including Kiev and Odessa. CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports at least three people died in the attacks and thousands more are struggling without power.
10: Dawn breaks and the strikes begin. Phone video captures a Russian cruise missile heading toward Kyiv. Russia fired nearly 70 missiles, plus drones, at targets across Ukraine. Air defenses managed to take down most of them. But this Kiev suburb did not escape unharmed. The mayor of Kiev says that all 16 missiles fired in the direction of the capital were successfully intercepted but as a result of those interceptions debris fell to the ground in this location massive destruction a 14-year-old girl was injured as well as her mother and a man nearby <laughs> Tatyana was at work. That girl, her granddaughter, Angelina, called her desperate for help. She was really scared in hysterics, Tatiana says. She cried, Grandma, the house was hit. It's on fire. She told me, my mother is unconscious under the rubble. Not for the first time, the crews worked to clear the rubble of homes and lives shattered by war. Serhiy lives just down the street. How is it possible that we do this to each other, he asks. I understand that this rocket didn't target this place, but how is it possible to shell peaceful people? In another part of Kiev, 79-year-old Leonid is still in his bathroom. He was jarred awake when missile debris smashed into the ground next to his house setting his son Alexander's car on fire, shattering windows and walls, ripping trees out by the roots. Yet he remained stoic. I was born in World War II, so I'm very calm about explosions, Leonid says. Today, I was only worried about my son. His son is fine. Ukrainian officials insist Russia's target, yet again, was the country's energy infrastructure. Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko is blunt. The Russians
6: want to bring depression, especially right now, Christmas time, New Year, the, the Russians want to bring us to, to black time, to, uh, without uh, lighting, to, without heating.
10: For now, Ukrainians just clear away the wreckage and carry on. But they're going to be carrying on, many of them, without electricity. We just got a statement from the head of the Ukrainian power company uh, conceding that significant damage was done to the power system and saying that they're having difficulty restoring power to regions of Kharkiv, Kiev, Odessa, Mykolaiv, Kherson, and Lviv. Those are basically the, all the major cities in Ukraine. Phil?
1: Remarkable resilience, unspeakable tragedy. Ben Wiedemann in Kiev... Ukraine, thanks so much. Also in our world lead for the third time, Benjamin Netanyahu is Israel's prime minister. His new coalition government was sworn in today. It includes far-right and ultra-religious parties alongside Netanyahu's center-right Likud party. In all, the government only has a four-seat majority in the Knesset after November's closely divided national election. Sounds somewhat familiar. Southwest Airlines says its schedule should finally be back to normal tomorrow, but it will be too late for one bride who is missing her own wedding. We're back with our money lead and pressure mounting on Southwest Airlines after a disastrous, maybe an understatement, week. The airline canceled more than 2,300 flights today. Passengers and luggage are still stranded around the country. But as CNN's Lucy Kavanaugh reports, the airline pledges tomorrow will be much better.
11: Eight days in, and finally, Southwest is planning to return to normal operations Friday, issuing a statement saying, With another holiday weekend full of important connections for our valued customers and employees, we are eager to return to a state of normalcy. But today, it's still chaos for Southwest passengers. The anxiety level is, has become crazy. One of the country's biggest carriers canceling nearly 2,400 flights Thursday, capping a week of travel misery that stranded thousands more.
4: It is very devastating. Southwest actually booked me on a flight for January 2nd. Um, my wedding is
12: tomorrow. December 30th.
11: Soon-to-be-married Katie Demko was scheduled to fly out of St. Louis with family for her own wedding. But Southwest's cancellations meant she had to miss meeting her fiancé at the altar in Belize. And when Southwest told her she may be able to rebook...
4: They did tell us that once it would go in the system, that it would not actually come to me. We wouldn't be able to book those because they had overbooked. But
11: for some customers... (laughs) The most emotional reunions seen at airports have been between people and their bags. I just haven't had this bag in a week.
10: I've been wearing other people's clothes.
11: Southwest first placed all the blame for stranded flyers, their lost bags, and its inability to get people new flights on bad weather. But airline CEO Bob Jordan admitted the company's systems were too outdated to deal with any big disruption.
1: The tools we use to recover from disruption serve as well 99% of the time, but clearly we need to double down on our already existing plans to upgrade systems for these extreme circumstances so that we never again face what's
5: happening uh, right now.
11: Southwest pilot and flight attendants unions say they've been ringing the alarm about the outdated system for years.
5: We've been harping on them since um,
0: 2015-ish. Uh, every year, we've seen some sort of meltdown happen.
2: This executives should have committed to ensuring that our IT infrastructure would be able to handle that growth and change Uh, in the way we operate our flights. Southwest has
11: promised to reimburse customers, but good luck reaching an agent on the phone, let alone in person. We're still in line, and nobody's giving us any direction. Those unable to fly home are finding creative solutions. I actually went up to the attendant and I said, Is there anybody going to Denver? Annie Brunner and her wife Megan were stranded in Minnesota, unable to find a flight or rental card to get home until a complete stranger offered to drive the couple back to Denver.
7: I think people are hesitant in this day and age to kind
11: of lean on a stranger. In our case, it couldn't have worked out any better. Southwest is busing some passengers from airport to airport in order to bring some relief amidst a total meltdown.
12: I'm still stranded. I need to drive nine more hours. My feet are swollen. I'm upset. I'm stressed, I'm tired, and I hate them.
11: Now, Southwest is operating roughly a third of its schedule today. They are promising a return to normal with minimal disruptions tomorrow, but the cascading effects are still being felt. I'm going to get out of the shot, Phil, to show you this mountain of luggage, these suitcases behind me. I have friends who are still in town who still have not been reunited with their bags. Here at Denver Airport, Southwest has hired extra staff to help people sort through these suitcases. But, of course, with this amount of luggage, it is going to take days for folks to get reunited with their bags. Phil?
1: Yeah, I I don't understand how they fix that anytime soon. What a mess. Lucy Kavanaugh, great reporting as always from Denver. Thanks so much. In our world lead, a familiar scene from the early days of the pandemic is playing out across the globe as countries begin to impose COVID measures for travelers coming from China. The U.S., Taiwan, India and Japan have all announced testing requirements. And now Italy has become the first European country to take action. CNN's Barbie Nadeau is in Rome, and Barbie, just this week, Italy had an alarming situation involving airline passengers that felt very familiar. What actually happened?
13: Yeah, you know, two flights coming directly from China to Milan, 50 percent of the passengers on both of those flights tested positive for COVID-19. Now, Italy, as you said, is the first country to impose such measures. But you have to remember, Italy was the first country back at the beginning of this pandemic now, nearly three years ago, that was the epicenter outside of China. So they feel they have the right to impose these tests, Phil.
1: Yeah. And I think the biggest question, particularly when you think back, is should we expect at this point uh, the European Union to announce COVID measures for travelers coming from China? Is this going to be something that has a bit of a domino effect?
13: Well, it doesn't sound like a European Union leaders met today. And there's just such disparity. There are countries like Italy is not going to budge on this mandatory testing. And other countries, including France, are not going to budge uh, on not testing. So there's no way to meet in the middle. You've got 27 countries here trying to come up with a cohesive plan when you've got such extremes. I think it'll be every country to themselves, much like we saw at the beginning of the pandemic nearly three years ago. And everybody's hoping it doesn't play out quite like it did back then, Phil.
1: Yeah, certainly a very different time. But a lot of eerie familiarity here. Barbie Nadeau in Rome, thanks so much. I want to bring in CNN medical analyst, Dr. Jonathan Reiner. And Dr. Reiner, I, I want to start with that kind of feeling of familiarity, again, with the caveat that this is a very different moment in terms of uh, what's available to test uh, vaccinations, different measures around, but nearly half of passengers on just two flights from China testing positive for COVID. One, does that surprise you? And two, should we expect similar situations to start playing out kind of across the world right now?
5: Yeah, hi, Phil. It certainly seems like deja vu all over again. Uh, It doesn't surprise me that flights from China are packed with folks with, with COVID, The Chinese have basically stopped reporting the number of cases, and when they were reporting, they were reporting only about 5,000 cases per day when uh, international estimates are closer to over a million cases per day or or more uh, in China. So as China opens up, people with COVID will be uh, exiting uh, that country. But it's important to understand that these variants that people are concerned about are already circulating around the world. They're, They're already in the United States in the United States. And it's impossible to keep uh, this virus in any kind of, you know, geographical, uh, geographic jail. You know, I, you, we've learned this over the last three years, and, and it's sort of distressing to see governments uh, act like they've learned nothing.
1: You know, one of the things in talking to U.S. officials, they've made clear they haven't uh, they aren't aware of any new variants at this point that are coming out of China that they aren't familiar with. But given the explosion of cases, the low vaccination rates, that's got to be the most palpable concern to some degree. What level of concern do you have about new variants?
5: Well, the more virus we have uh, circulating in this country and around the world, the more opportunity uh, there is for the virus to, to mutate. It's important for people to understand that uh, we actually have a program in this country to look for uh, uh, variants of concern entering the United States. Uh, We test about 10% of arriving uh, passengers at seven airports around the United States. And this gives us uh, actually some surveillance on uh, the pattern of virus entering the United States. So so we are looking. Unfortunately, the, the plan, the US plan to test passengers Uh, two days before they uh, depart uh, China, just won't work. If you're going to limit transmission, uh, what we've learned is that you really have to test passengers with rapid assays, basically as they're getting on board the airplane. If you're testing them two days uh, before departure, uh, you're missing uh, many, many uh, people who are infected. So I think this is mostly performative. And I think it's also probably intended to try and pressure the Chinese to be more cooperative and release more of their, uh, their genomic surveillance data. And if it succeeds in doing that, then perhaps it's, it's beneficial. Uh, but I do have concerns that it's just going to increase, uh, you know, the level of uh, anxiety about uh, Asian travelers around the world.
1: Yeah, you know, with the 30 seconds we have left, one of the big questions I've had U.S. officials have made clear repeatedly that they have offered Uh, the Chinese government access to mRNA uh, vaccines. They've made clear they're willing to help on that front. They've repeatedly been told thanks, but no thanks. Uh, Does that need to change? As you look at kind of China opening up this very kind of fluid strategy that they're currently pursuing, uh, do you hope that changes? Do you think that will change?
5: Boy, that's where I'd be putting all my effort. Now, you're going to see a humanitarian disaster in in China with maybe in the next few weeks, maybe uh, two to three hundred thousand Chinese uh, dying over the next year, over a million Chinese dying. We should be pouring mRNA uh, vaccine into that uh, country. Uh, The Chinese were resistant. All their vaccines were made uh, in country with technology that turned out to be inferior. And they didn't vaccinate very well the people who are most vulnerable, particularly their elderly. Uh, 30% uh, 30 of people over the age of 60 in China have not been vaccinated. Uh, and, uh, 60% of people over the age of 80 have not been vaccinated. Yeah. So that's where I'd be putting my money, getting MRNA vaccines to them.
1: Yeah, we will have to see how it plays out. Dr. Jonathan Reiner, as always, sir. Thanks so much. My pleasure. A mother springs into action when doctors cannot get a hold of the life-saving cancer medication for her daughter. It's coming up next. In our health lead, the story of a desperate mother who refused to take no for an answer. One doctor we talked to calls her an angry mama bear. Her daughter is battling leukemia and couldn't get access to a drug that's critical for her treatment, a CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen shows us. It didn't mean giving up.
14: Abby Bray was a healthy little girl in Tampa, Florida, when one month after her ninth birthday, troubling symptoms. She said, it feels like there's knives in my bones. After her pediatrician ran some tests a phone call to her parents, Laura and Mike. There's a bed waiting for her at
12: St. Joe's Pediatric Oncology Unit. Pack a bag, plan to stay,
14: get there immediately. Abby had acute lymphoblastic leukemia. To save her life, she would need a rigorous regimen of chemotherapy, including a drug called Erwinase. But then... A few months into
12: treatment, we were told, okay, you have to go home, you can't get this medicine today. It's, it's a shortage.
14: Abby wanted answers. She knew
12: she needed to take all of her medicine. Like, what happens now?
14: Does this mean I die? That's when Laura sprung into action, assembling a group of friends called Abby's Angels. She made a list of children's hospitals in the U.S., and everyone pitched in to make phone calls. Just a few hours later,
12: we had gone through it. And we, we found some medicines. One of my friends made the call.
14: Over the next nine months, Laura needed to step in again to get two other drugs the hospital couldn't find because of shortages.
12: Never once did I contemplate that I would also have to be navigating the largest global supply chain in the world in order to keep her
14: alive. Laura is a business school professor, and so she had the skills to do that but she knew other families weren't so fortunate.
12: It really haunted me.
14: A study last year showing that of 19 essential agents to treat cancer in children, 74% had experienced one or more shortages since 2016. Pediatric oncologist Dr. Yoram Ungaru says there are several reasons for the shortages, including...
8: When you look at the drugs overwhelmingly that are in short supply, they are not your blockbuster drugs. They are not the drugs that pharmaceutical companies generate huge profits from.
14: So Laura took matters into her own hands, forming Angels for Change, raising about half a million dollars, she says, in less than three years to pay a small drug manufacturer to make essential drugs and offer them up to any hospital that needs them. Since May...
12: They've been accessed more than half a million times for patients all over
14: the U.S. Earning praise from experts.
8: You just look at what her organization has accomplished in the past few years, I think it speaks for itself. And there's something to say about that adage, hell hath no fury like an angry mama bear.
14: This mama bear navigating the global supply chain for children all over the country with cancer. Elizabeth Cohen, CNN reporting.
1: Our thanks to Elizabeth Cohen for that great report. Our coverage continues with the one, the only, Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work
0: next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599.